It may sound strange to say it this way, but it's a fact of life that we die. Death is all around us. We try not to think about it too much. In fact, I was reading an article not too long ago that they were trying to find out what is the one thing that Americans consider obscene. Now, that's a hard one because it's something that everybody in the country dislikes and would try to avoid. And in America, there's not many of those. But death. Now, that seemed to come always to the top. We see it around us more so thanks to the media with all of the uh, movies and films, but also the news. And it's uh, shocking when we see it in such violent proportions. But it also is a fact of life that some of our friends and relatives pass away, and we know that this is an inevitable mark of the human race. And yet we as Christians know that is not the final word. That is only a temporary situation because we know all now what Christ has done through his resurrection and with the hope of glory. And that basic hope and that victory of God was proclaimed very early in the Bible, especially here in Genesis chapter 5. The chapter is a genealogy, as I said, that traces the line from Adam to Noah. And it is going to be constructed within each pattern, and if you read it, the pattern becomes monotonous. Uh, It's a pattern that is made up of ten sections, we call them ten panels, where it will say basically in each section, this individual lived so many years. And after he'd lived so many years, he had sons and daughters. And then after he had sons and daughters, he lived so many years. And all the years that he lived were this, and they give you the total, and he died. Not a lot on each of those people that they lived, they had children, and they died. Now, when we read it, we tend to look at it more from our modern studies of asking questions that are important to ask, but they sometimes take us away from where the truth of the passage has to be emphasized. We read this chapter and we're more concerned with the question of how did they get to live that many years? How come they lived to such old ages? And all, all we would be able to say is that prior to the flood, God had built into the creation the protection of aging and the protection of the... Uh, different influences that would cause early death and early illness because he wanted to populate the earth. So on one hand, you see that you've got people being born and people are filling the earth and they're living for a long time, but every panel, as you're going through here almost, ends with a simple reminder, and he died. If there ever was a chapter in the Bible that was set out to convince you that... um, the curse was true. When you eat from this tree, you shall surely die, and the death would reign on the earth. This chapter is a solemn reminder. It's like reading an obituary in the newspaper. Um, you don't read them when you're young. You tend to read them when you're a little older and see who has died and at what age and whatever. It's simple that this is the life cycle. But the constant refrain of this chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died, shows immediately that 
there is a power at work in the world, uh, the effect of the curse, the result of sin, and that escaping death uh, is not in the power of human beings. The ancient world tried to deal with it. Every civilization has dealt with death from the very beginning. In the ancient world, they used to go on quests in their mythological literature. Uh, Someone wanted to find the secret of immortality or the secret of life, and he would have to go on a long journey, maybe across the ocean or down into the underworld or somewhere. And it always came out the same, that in order to achieve uh, immortality, you had to conquer death. It's kind of like the statement attributed to Napoleon when he was asked once, how do you start a new religion? (laughs) He said, it's very easy. You just die and come back in the grave. That'll do it. But, you know, this is the nature of the world. Uh, We look at death and we often ask, is is that it? Is that all we're looking at, this life? And, uh, And that's what many people in the world only have to look forward to. That's why the faith is so precious, because it tells you that death is not a permanent and lasting and terrible thing. It is a transition into the presence of God for those who believe. But as I read through this chapter, and I'm going to read some panels as we go through it, there are three places in this chapter where the pattern is interrupted with additional information. And while this skeleton outline of the passage with he lived this many years, he had children, he lived more years, and then he died, well, that's the framework, and you can't miss it as you read through it. Yet at the beginning and in the middle and at the end, there are certain things said that let us know how this has to be viewed from the perspective of a believer. The first comes at the very beginning, and this is the reminder of what God had intended for the human race. It was not God's intention, as he reveals in the scripture, that he would create people who would only suffer and die. That was not the intention. That came about because of sin and because of the curse. So this chapter reminds you what God had. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man... He created him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image, and he named him Seth. Now, we're told a couple of things here that are very important for understanding creation in contrast to death, because that's what's going to be the nature of the whole Bible. On the one hand, you've got death reigning, which is the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom of Satan. But on the other hand, you've got God constantly saying, I can solve this. I never was going to do it this way, but sin got in the way. But I can tell you what I have in mind. And we're reminded here that God created people to be his image. Image has nothing to do with bodily shape. It has nothing to do with a distinction between male and female. It's an expression that describes the intellectual, spiritual, and moral capacity of human beings. God made humans to be the image of God in order that they might rule and have dominion on the earth representing God. Animals can't do that. Only humans 
because we have that capacity. We are the image of God. In the ancient world, uh, in temples, all these pagan kings would set up statues or images of their gods. But they're stone. They have ears, but they don't hear. They mouths, but they don't talk. And God is not interested in just putting up statues of himself all over the world. He chooses to put us in the world, functioning images of God to rule and have dominion on his behalf. That's the nature. That's what God had intended. He wanted people to be his vice regents on the world, to be obedient to him, of course, but to serve and honor him in the way they live in this world. And he gave them that capacity to do so. When sin entered into the world, humans didn't cease being the image of God, but it was greatly tarnished so that it's almost in some cases not recognizable. But you could look at somebody who is uh, maybe on drugs and out of this, out of his mind and, and really a, a, a wreck in every human physical way. And while you might at the moment have sympathy and, and maybe sometimes a little bit annoyance, you have to put into the back of your mind, he too is the image of God. And if the grace of God ever got a hold of him, he can sing with angels. Because God has invested something in human nature, and he's not going to let Satan carry it off in a victory. That's why redemption. That's why the salvation in Christ. What we learn in this passage is very interesting, that that being the image of God is passed down by reproduction. God created Adam and Eve as the image of God. And now we're told Adam and uh, his wife, Eve, they produce a child, Seth, in that same likeness, in that same image. So it is the human nature, the spiritual, intellectual capacity that is passed on by procreation. And uh, that's why it's the nature, human nature. However, we also know that because it has been tarnished and uh, almost in many cases unrecognizable, God had to step in to rescue his people. And he offered to them his grace that they might become once again the people of God. And so when we read a passage like this, we have to connect it to the New Testament. Because when you receive Christ as your Savior, What that does is that it makes you alive, spiritually alive in Christ, so that from now on, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are going to work together, what? To form you into the image of Christ. Because Christ is the second Adam. God created Adam as his image. Christ is the second Adam. That's the image. We are made to conform to him and be Christ-like And his image is then going to control, characterize our life. That's the whole goal of salvation. That's why we study the word of God. That's why we participate in the religious life of the church. It's all to become more and more like Christ so that his image is impressed upon our lives. And we are then made fit by the gospel to be the Lord's personal representatives on this earth as he had planned in the beginning. And for all of that, we're told here, 
that uh, when God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them. The blessing is a big theme in the book of Genesis. It's an interesting word in the Old Testament. It essentially means enrichment. I mean, if you go to your post office box tomorrow and there's an unexpected check for $5,000, you probably, among other things, would say, what a blessing. I mean, this is an enrichment. This is a gift. If you are in the word of God and the spirit of God moves you and you are impressed by the doctrine and the truth that is there, you'll say that's a spiritual blessing. A blessing is God's gift. It's an enrichment and it's also with it an empowerment so that when God blessed Adam and Eve, he not only gave them this this gift of life and this purpose in life, but he gave them the enablement or the power to do what he wanted them to do. When you and I come to faith in Christ and we receive Christ and begin to live according to the teachings of Christ, God will bless us in many ways. But the greatest blessing is eternal life. It's a gift. That's what a blessing is. It's a gift. And the gift is eternal life. But he also showers blessings on us in other ways short of eternal life. The blessings of family and the blessing of peace and blessing of good health when we have it and so on as long as it lasts. All these things are gifts from God. So that what God produces, he blesses. And when you bring it to the New Testament, when we talk about salvation in Christ, those whom God redeems and brings into the service of the Father by his grace, he blesses, which means he enables you to live the way he wants you to live. Someone once said, the Christian life is not difficult. (laughs) It's impossible. If you try to do it by yourself. But if you try to do it by the power of God and the provision of his spirit and the word, uh, then you can understand how God intended it to work. And that's the blessing of God. So at the very beginning, you are reminded that a world that is filled with war and violence and hatred and malice and strife and disease and death, that's not what God created in the beginning. That came about because of the presence of sin. And uh, this chapter is going to remind people God had a higher plan than just that you live, have children, and die. But many people in the world, that's their life. They live, they have children, they die. And oh, it may be they would uh, fancy it up a little bit, they live in a nicer house, or they get a better refrigerator, or they have culture, or whatever, but they still, they live, they have a family, they die. And uh, essentially, that is not what God had in mind. We're not here just to exist and survive until it's over. So God wants us to be his personal representatives, but he gives us the power to do it. That's his blessing. Then you start reading within paragraphs that so-and-so, Seth lived 105 years. He fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh, 807 years. And now that sons and daughters, all his days were 912 years, and he died. So you get the pattern going. You're back to the routine of the structure until you come to the seventh panel, which is Enoch. And uh, that's the second place where in this passage we have a break from the pattern. It says in verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, 
he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. We have a break in the pattern here. In all the others it says so-and-so lived so many years and then he had sons and daughters. And after he had the sons and daughters, he lived so many years. This one doesn't say that. It doesn't say Enoch lived. We know he did, but that's not the language, the verse. It says he walked with God. Which immediately reminds us of a doctrine that is going to come out full force in the rest of Scripture. There is a difference between just living and walking with God. This is what we're told again and again in the Bible. You sang a little bit today about walking with the Lord. We've got to think about that one. God said to Abram in Genesis 17, walk before me in my presence and be perfect. Walking with God is the spiritual life. It's not survival. It's not just going through the routine. It's not just living like the world. It's living above the world. When you tease out that metaphor a little bit and ask, well, what does it mean to walk with the Lord? Because after all, this is, this is church talk. You know, there's all kinds of things we say in Christianity, and we don't ever really stop and tease it out to say, well, what does it mean? I'm going to walk with the Lord. It basically means that you are constantly aware of his presence in your life. I mean, if you were walking down the street with a friend, I'm sure you would be aware the friend was there. This is becoming rare nowadays because now you walk down looking at your cell phone. But if you're looking with a friend and you're walking together, you're constantly aware that you're walking with someone, that the presence is there. And it usually will mean if you're walking with someone that you're friends. And if you're walking with them, it means you're probably going in the same direction. So if you start thinking of this in the spiritual level, you are constantly aware of the presence of the Lord in your life. You are friends with the Lord because you're on personal communication. You're going in the same direction of the Lord so that you are you're heading in the right paths all the time. And you'll be able to communicate and talk and to discuss. And if you find yourself going in a different direction, if you really are a believer, that will bother you soon and you'll want to get back on the right path to walk with him. It's your spiritual life. It's the way you conduct your life with the full knowledge that the Lord is actually with you every moment of the day, every moment of the night, and you are to find out how you are to live so that you and the Lord are keeping that friendship and that direction, and that journey together. It's okay that we talk about being pilgrims in this world with each other. If we're pilgrims with each other, that's not going to be as helpful as if we walk with the Lord. As long as we're all walking with the Lord, we'll be going in the right direction. Now, it doesn't say Enoch lived, although he did, of course. It says he walked with the Lord. And not just it isn't just occasionally that he walked with the Lord. It says he walked with the Lord for 300 years. That's quite a life. And it's quite a life if you think in terms of what else is going on in the world at that time. Enoch is the seventh from Adam in the line through Seth. 
If you go back to Genesis 4, there is another man who is a seventh from Adam in the line of Cain. And that's Lamech, the man who killed people and was a bigamist. So you're living in a world that is characterized much like our world with violations of God's institutions and the shedding of blood and the presence of warfare. That's the world he's living in. And in the middle of all of that, he walks with God. Jude in the New Testament tell us that if you're walking with God, you're also sold out to the cause of God. And so Jude reminds us that Enoch was a preacher. And he warned people of the judgment to come. You can't walk with the Lord in an evil world and never say anything. Because you are here to present God's message and God's plan so that people will escape the judgment that is coming. And that's what Enoch did. So Enoch walked with God. We're also told in the passage all the way through the chapter that so-and-so lived so many years and he died. Enoch didn't die. He walked with God. And we're told that God took him. Now that is kind of ambiguous, just the way it's said, except that that same expression will occur elsewhere in the Old Testament, most notably for the fact that God took Elijah out of this world. And so we can safely assume and understand here that God chose to rescue Enoch from this world and he didn't die. He's a man who walked with God. He was a man who warned of the judgment to come. He was a man who escaped death because God singled him out for that special blessing. Why? He wanted to teach people of all time that God himself can overrule death at any moment, at any time, whenever he wants. He is not bound by the rules of Uh, that are set in place by Satan or by the human circumstances. God is above it. And God says, I will not let Enoch die, I will take him. I will not let Elijah die, I will take him. Showing that he can overcome, that he is greater than the death that is in the world. And what does the New Testament say? You and I who are here as Christians, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Some of us may not die because it says we who are alive at the end of the age will be caught up to be with the Lord. So people, some people, some Christians, if that's their time, it's the time of the end of the world, will be taken to glory without facing death. Others who died will be raised in Christ and be taken to glory. God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over life. God is the judge of the world. God is the savior of the world. And death is not a problem to him. John said in recording the words of Jesus in Revelation that Christ said, I have the keys of death, life, and have overcome the world. And it's up to Christ then of how the world system is going to work out. So with our trust in the Lord... We will prepare to live in a world that is evil by walking with the Lord. That's a life of obedience and faith. And we will warn the world by the word of God. And we fully expect, unless the Lord comes soon, that we will in turn die. But some of us may not. 
depending on when the Lord comes. And so this little window in the middle of this genealogy says, God's not bound by death and by the life cycle. God is over all of this. That's why he can promise to you and to me eternal life, because he holds the keys. The last part of this genealogy chapter is at the end where we have a birth with hope. And this is in verse, let's see, verse 28, the end, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us comfort from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Life had gotten so difficult And uh, you'll see that more so in Genesis 6, where the text will tell you that every imagination of every thought of every person was only evil continually. I don't think you can say it any stronger than that. That was a horrible thing that led up to the flood. And the people who are believers are are struggling, living under the curse, and, and it's burdensome. And so all of a sudden, Lamech has a son named Noah. And he somehow is prompted in his faith to say, this one might be a chosen one to give us comfort and relief. Uh, And then he names him Noah, which means rest. So he's hoping for rest and he's hoping for comfort in a world that is surviving under a curse where evil abounds. I don't think Lamech knew what God had in mind to do in order to answer that wish. And that is to judge the world and to remove evil and to start over again with Noah and his family. But that too is paralleled with the New Testament. Christians for ages have cried out to God, how long, O Lord, are you going to put up with all this on earth? And we look for the coming of the Lord. And our hope is in someone also who was born into a family of faith. And that one we look to for comfort and relief. And we're told by him himself in the Gospel of Matthew, what will it be like when he comes? It will be as it was in the days of Noah, that many will be destroyed because he will come to judge the world. Relief from the curse and eternal rest will only come to full fruition with the coming of the Lord. And when he comes, he will judge the world. The removal of evil, the destruction of Satan, the judgment of sin, preparing the way for a new order in Christ. That's the hope. So we know as Christians, this is what God had in mind when he created the human race, to be his personal representatives. And that is being renewed in us because of the gospel, because of Christ. And we know that we're living in an evil world and our responsibility is straightforward. We're supposed to walk with the Lord. We're supposed to live a life of faithfulness and obedience. And we do that not just to survive until we die. We do that because we know there's a hope of glory coming, a time of rest and a time of comfort, not just for us, but for this whole world. And that's the hope that lies in the future. So you take a little genealogy and it certainly is telling us that death reigns. But it's telling the believer, that's not the way you look at life. 
That's not the way you look at death in this world. The way you look at it is through the gospel, through the revelation in Christ, where he will restore the image and where he will have endless fellowship with you and he will give you endless rest and comfort in the world to come, starting in this life in your walk with him. That's what the gospel is all about. Our task then is to make sure we hold to that faith and that hope and to commit ourselves again and anew to walk with the Lord in a life of obedience and service. And if we ourselves have confusion and difficulty, we need to find help from the word and from the life of the church. There may be some who have never really found that solution to this life that we endure because they have not heard and responded to the gospel. And uh, you may be one of those. You need to make sure that you find your place in the Lord's kingdom by faith in Christ. And you may know people, you may be a believer, but you may know people, good friends of yours who are just worldlings. They're getting by and they're surviving, but you have the answer. And it's for you to share that word that there is more hope than just life cycle and death. But you have to live it and you have to express it in your words. You are the light And you are the witness. You're like Enoch, preaching and warning people of the judgment to come. But the message will be flat if you're not walking with the Lord. So that's what we invite you to think about this morning at the end of this service. That if there is something in your heart that you need to get right or to sort through and you want prayer, then this is your time. And uh, we will be happy to open to you the word and to try to share with you the first steps in that direction. But renew your commitment. Don't just sing about walking with the Lord. Do it. Because that's why you're here on earth and not in heaven. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that even this primitive time of the beginning of the human race, already you had the faith being demonstrated by the message and the warning and a life cycle of righteousness because your people always know that you have overcome the world and you grant that to us by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.